started last week on the uh, with the New Testament Church, and we let's see, you missed last week, mm-hmm. Ryan, but anyway, so I'll I'm going to do what we've got for today, and there I'll get with you later on on that. Uh, we look first of all at the church established in the first century, <coughs> and we notice that first of all that all authority resided in the apostles. In fact, the New Testament could not be any more explicit than that all authority resided in the apostles. And then we noted that the way the canon came about is that the early church recognized these documents because of their having either been written by an apostle or endorsed by an apostle. And the number one criteria to become part of the New Testament canon was the fact that it was either written or endorsed by an apostle. For example, we noted that Mark got in, even though he was not an apostle, but because that he was converted by Peter, and his, his gospel was actually called the Gospel of Peter according to Mark. He actually, it was recognized as the preaching of Peter recorded by Mark. And Luke got in because of being such a close companion of the apostle Paul, and from the very first, his two documents were accepted. James got in because being the the brother of Jesus, and so his letter was accepted right from the first. And so in that way, the documents formed. Well, we can look at the, uh, not only the statements in the New Testament, but when we read the material from the uh, early church fathers, and by that I mean the going back to people like Polycarp that were converted when the apostles were still alive, in fact, uh, Polycarp converted by the apostle John. And the when we look at these documents, uh, there's over 1,500 documents going right back into the first century, and it's obvious from reading these documents that number one, to show how they valued the New Testament and it was the authority, one can completely reconstruct the New Testament from the quotations in these 1,500 documents. In other words, if you must lose all the manuscripts in the New Testament, you could actually reconstruct it from the quotations. And then not only that, but you can see when you look at the way they're quoted, they're quoted with authority and that they recognize that that these documents written by the apostles are the authority in the church. And so for those uh, first years after the apostle, after the apostles, it's it's evident uh, beyond any doubt from all the documents that we have that the full authority now resided uh, in the documents uh, written by the apostles and the documents that would eventually become the New Testament. Okay, we noted that uh, Paul himself had told the elders that grievous wolves for enter in their midst, not sparing the flock, and would make disciples after themselves in Acts 20. And so we noticed a change the, when we look at this historically, and the way we look at it historically is we just read the letters of these people, like the epistle of Clement, First and Second Clement, the epistle of Barnabas, uh, the writings of Irenaeus, Origen, uh, and others at this period in time. And we can see that one of the first things that happened is that we begin to see a change in the leadership. And what had been a very simple thing in the New Testament with individual congregations and a plurality of elders within that congregation, all of a sudden we noted that uh, we have a bishop over a church and elders under the bishop. Then we have an archbishop over a number of bishops. And this thing just grows until we finally have the Pope in the 600s. And we can follow it on down to that point. So we have now a group that is in the process of becoming uh, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, 
when we begin to see real changes made in the church is once the authority changes. As long as the authority that's respected and recognized is the New Testament, uh, these people are right in tune with what we read and the same type of worship and all we find in the New Testament. But then as we begin to see the authority change and, and leaders in the church assuming real positions of authority like archbishop and on up, well then these people in these high positions, their opinions become very weighty. And so no longer can an individual just affect an individual congregation uh, with a wrong decision or, or whatever. But now this individual can, if he makes a wrong decision or if he's a power person himself, he can affect a whole lot of churches. And so we begin to see some changes that take place as the authority uh, changes. All right, now, the first changes that take place in the church, contrary to what... Uh, you know, people are led to believe today that, you know, the New Testament is just so hard to understand that we all just, uh, you know, interpret it in a lot of different ways. The first changes took place not because of any difference in understanding uh, of the Scriptures, but because of the authority thing. In other words, when they, when they substituted sprinkling for immersion, and in 251, the first example, it wasn't because anybody had a different understanding of the New Testament. But they had just come to the conclusion that if somebody was sick, it made sense to uh, pour water over him or sprinkling. And so for they called it clinical baptism, and they substituted that for it. And then as they did other things, it wasn't because they changed in their understanding. They just felt they had the authority to do it. In other words, the, the church looked at itself as the living church, and that the, this authority structure uh, was replacing the apostles. And so therefore, as they wanted to change things, they did it. And, and when they changed various things, it, again, it wasn't because we all of a sudden have a different understanding. They just simply thought they had the authority to change it in that way. And we gave an example last week from the Catholic Bible that on some of the things, uh, like the, uh, for example, qualifications of an overseer or bishop, and also on something like baptism, uh, in their own Bible, they have comments out to the side that show that they understand that passage the same as we do. Uh, they just sent, and they refer to it as the practice of the primitive church. They just simply believe they have the authority to change it in that line. And if you're studying with anybody from that background, this is a real big point to get across because they're led to believe that there's just all these differences in interpretations and we can't understand it the same way. And Barbara and I found this real effective in the Northeast when we sit down with people of a, a Catholic background and we'd show them this and, and our experience was that every time they were surprised to find out, hey, they, they understand that this is immersion and it's for adults. They understand that the priests were married and didn't have to be celibate or anything like that. And they just simply believed that they had the right to change it and they, and they changed it. Okay, now we ended last week with uh, noting that the Greek Orthodox Church broke off from what is becoming the Roman Catholic Church in 1054, okay? And the reason for the break off is a power struggle. Uh, there's a big battle going on, and uh, the people over in the eastern the part do not want to accept the western world's pope at Rome. And so there's many little doctrinal differences that they talk about, but the real issue was power. And so they broke off, and you had the pope now with the Roman or western church, 
and then you had the Greek Orthodox Church. Well, when they broke off, there were things that would be changed by the Roman Catholic that the Greeks would not buy into. For example, the Greek Orthodox Church would continue down through its history to practice immersion. And it would be many, many years on down before they would accept anything else. Uh, even something like uh, uh, using instruments of music in worship that uh, we would find it introduced uh, in the 600s by a pope but the Greek Orthodox Church, when they broke off, did not buy into that. And so they continued to have their worship without any instruments and also to practice uh, immersion for baptism. And then although they were centralized, they really didn't have anybody with the power that the, the Pope had. Then we came, and this is where we ended and where we start tonight, come all the way down to Martin Luther. Okay. Martin Luther at 20 years of age, uh, winds up from a library in Germany, Wittenberg, Germany, with a complete copy of the scriptures. And by the way, it, it wasn't common for everybody to have a complete copy of the scriptures. And so he winds up with a complete copy of the scriptures, and he becomes a devout student. Well, put yourself in the position of a person who is a very devout monk in the Catholic Church, and all these years, you have bought into these various traditions and all as if they were just the law of God and, and that these priests had the right to do that. And you really never thought about it much in any other way. And you're very sincere and you want to be a priest. And so here you get your first complete copy. And Martin Luther, by the way, was, had already studied Greek, studied Hebrew. He's a, he's a real scholar. And so he can actually read it in the original language. Well, what happened is, as he read and studied, he became very disturbed uh, about what he saw going on in the church. And Paul's right there. It helps to, uh, at least to my mind, when I'm reading that, I'm thinking how important it is for people to be studying the Bible on a regular basis. That it is really hard, I believe, to pull the wool over people's eyes when they are themselves you know, studying on a regular basis. And, and what changed Martin Luther into the person he became? Keep in mind, there was nobody to preach to him. And, and influence him. It's just information that he had. He already believed in the inspiration of the Bible. And once he read that, and then he saw these things transparent, his own conscience went to work on him. And so he kept, though, tolerating things that were done within the church. And finally, the, the straw that broke the camel's back was the sale of indulgence in the Catholic Church in Germany. And that is that they actually, in order to raise money for the church, they sold the right to commit a sin. And that was it. And so in 1517, uh, the big day for the Protestant Reformation, uh, he takes his 95-point thesis and nails it on the door at the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, uh, uh, Germany. And what it really is is... 95 discrepancies he sees between the Catholic Church and what he reads in the in the New Testament, and and the cell of indulgences was just one. Well, does history tell us how he got a hold of the Bible, the copy? Said he got it out of, out of the library. Keep in mind, at this time, we're still behind the printing press. We've got all of this to come, at, and so that your copies of just about everything are handwritten, and your common people don't have it, and for the most part. By this time, in the 1500s, the Catholic Church had for years taken the Bible out of the hands of the common people. 
In other words, it was it was strictly in. If, in other words, if he had not been a, a in the Catholic uh, uh, headed to be a priest, he was in a monastery. Right. right. Yeah. And the so most, right. most so of the monasteries would have him. Right. He would have never had access. And they actually, you know, I don't spend all the time like on the Catholic Church or anything like that. But they actually advised against the common people reading. It's almost a sham to see some of the statements today when the uh, Catholic Church speaks out like we encourage our people to read the Bible and things like that because they didn't. Uh, they, they actually discouraged it and what it did, it put the people at the mercy of the priest. They were, they were at the total mercy of, of the priest. And so when he started reading though, he started speaking out. And apparently there were others that were reading also. Well, for four years he worked for reform within the Catholic Church. And finally, in 1521, the Catholic Church expelled him, excommunicated him. And so he didn't just get a well, they kicked him out. And he could not be a priest or a monk. And at this time in history, by the way, the Catholic Church is it in the Western world. And so it would be like uh, being a Mormon in Salt Lake City and you get excommunicated. Being a Jew in Jerusalem and they excommunicate you. Uh, or being in the church, Christ or a Baptist in Nashville and they excommunicate you, you know. But it, it, was, it was that type of thing. It was all Roman Catholic. And so to excommunicate somebody was just almost to destroy them. I mean, it, it just literally was to destroy them in any way everybody would look down on them and all. But anyway, he started worshiping on his own and meeting with other groups and more and more people started to break away uh, and to, to look into what he was saying. And the word Protestant came from the word they began to protest against the authority of the Pope. In other words, what they all became convinced on uh, is that the entire problem in the Catholic Church was not these individual doctrines, but it was the Pope. And that, and that they had a choice. And the difference between the Catholic Church and all the Protestant groups was simply a, method, uh, a, a thing of authority. With the Catholic Church, there was the recognition of the Pope as the final authority and the living Church. And with what became the Protestants, it was a protest against that and they were saying that all authority was in the scriptures. And so from this point on, all these Protestant churches that come about will have one thing in common, and that is they will look to the scriptures as the final authority, and this will be the big separation between Protestant and Catholic. One looking to the Pope, and the other looking to the scriptures. Uh, the Catholic Church would look at the New Testament in the way you and I would look at the Old Testament. We look at it as history and examples and all. Well, that's the way they look at the New, and then they have, instead of the New Testament, the, the Pope and their officials and all to lead them further. Okay, out of this came the Lutheran Church after the death of Luther. Now, Luther himself pleaded with them to be just Christians. Uh, and I mean, his, his ideas are... Just like anything you read in some of the Restoration literature, uh, he pleaded. He he didn't feel that he had arrived. He wanted them to continue to study the Bible. He wanted them just to be Christians. He wanted them to recognize the Scriptures as the authority. And uh, when he dies, that's what he leaves with. And they still form what becomes the Lutheran Church. But now it's interesting. It, it's the indication is they didn't just go out and start a church and say this is the Lutheran Church. Other people started calling them that. 
because they, they had been influenced by Luther, just like in the Restoration Movement. They started calling them Campbellites because Campbell had been a force. And, and this has happened a number of times in history. But it wasn't something they just went out and said, we're going to call ourselves a Lutheran church. And then after they called that for a while, uh, then they went ahead and, and accepted it. Now, one point on Martin Luther, where he sometimes misrepresented the, the thing of, you know, he said he's noted for the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. That Martin Luther's emphasis on salvation by faith came because of the Roman Catholics' emphasis on works and penances. In other words, that when you teach that a baby has to be baptized or to be lost, obviously you're teaching water salvation or baptism salvation. And when you teach that you get the remission of sins by partaking of the Holy Communion that, that turns into the literal blood and the literal body of Christ, and these various sacraments and ordinances that all this power was residing within it. In other words, in their religion, they put emphasis on what they did. The church, you know, we give the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, the baptism. And so it tied salvation to the doing of these things that was set out by the Catholic Church. And so Martin Luther, of course, that motivated him to re-examine that entire thing, and so his conclusion was that you are saved absolutely 100% in the blood of Christ and not in any sense because of your merit. To take Martin Luther and represent him by saying, well, he, he believed you didn't have to have works, that you just were saved by faith, is really to not be fair with him because he believed and taught that if you had faith in your heart, that the fruits would be obedience to God. And so that, in other words, he never taught anybody that you just believe and that's it. But, he, but what he taught was you're justified by your belief in Christ, but if you do have that belief, then you will obey. You will be baptized, you will take the Lord's Supper, you will do anything else that you know, that you understand the scriptures to teach. Okay, at this point, before we move to the next uh, Anybody have any comments over anything we've said so far? So then did the group begin the, the, the concept? Of, you said that he understood that you, you weren't saved by, by works, but mm -hmm. did, the, did, the, group, did yeah. the group begin to... Right, they, they saw too. In other words, he began... See, a lot of times when you have something that is proclaimed, and people buy into it in a quick way. What has been the case is that people have been thinking about it for a period of time. And just like there was probably any number of people in the Catholic Church that had the same feelings that Martin Luther, and he just was that, that strong person that really put it all together and took a stand. But uh, it's, it's sort of like I was reading a thing that it's, it's good to write letters to your senators and people like that if you have a complaint. It's that they know that for, for every hundred or so people that feel something, only one will write. And so it says that when they receive a personal letter, they realize, and they've got it mathematically figured out, that for every letter that represents 100 or 200 or 300 people here uh, from a mathematical standpoint. And so in order for him to be so successful and not to have his life taken, there had to be others that were thinking, and uh, he just... You know, he was the one that articulated it and brought it out, and but he definitely found a ready audience among a lot of people. But I think you said in the beginning that 
he he got credit for believing in faith only, and so in a. Well, he does. And yeah, in a yeah. But and I'm saying the way that, some people think of, of right. faith only. I it was, was it's justification. They understood that it it's works that I mean that we just that it's that that's just natural manifestation right. of, of faith. I'm saying the way it's, he's been represented is people will read something like faith only, like they believe you can just say by believing, period. And that's really not accurate. They believe you're saved by your trust in the sacrifice of Christ and that all the merit is from Christ. But he believed definitely, and, and those that have that in their creed, that faith, if it's there, will manifest itself in obedience. Uh, in fact, they, they talk a whole lot about works and things of that nature and a godly life and all. I mean, very strict statements on a godly life. But, but they looked at it in really, I believe, a right sense. It was the manifestation of the faith within the individual. Okay, uh, <clears throat> right about this time, the next big man in history is John Calvin. You got Martin Luther first in 1517, and then Calvin, 1509 to 1564. And Calvin would be the, really the, the Presbyterian Church would form as a result of the teaching of Calvin. Both of John Calvin's parents were Roman Catholic, and he was brought up in the Catholic Church. He benefits by, by what has happened with Martin Luther. And he's also a very serious student of the scriptures and has a copy of the scriptures and all. And so he begins to teach, and as a result, there are more people out of the Catholic Church that break away and, and follow Calvin. Now, the word Presbyterian, like we call it Presbyterian Church, it comes from the word presbyter that literally means elder. It's just a Greek word that means elder. And it simply had reference to the fact that uh, from his standpoint, remember the, big, the bad thing in religion is the Pope from their standpoint. Well, he was emphasizing that congregations ought to be governed by plurality of elders and not by any one person. And so that's how the name Presbyterian Church came about. It's just simply to, to emphasize that a church is governed by a plurality of elders and not by any one individual. So in that day, that was that the statement Presbyterian or Presbyter was a very strong statement that flew right in the face of what the Catholic Church taught. And also you can see that some of the things we're going to see later on in the Restoration Movement didn't come about by anybody there being super original in their thinking or anything, but these truths have, have been brought down and other people have seen these things also. Now, when John Calvin formed this group then, and, uh, and they were a little farther away from the Catholic Church than what the Lutherans were. The, the Lutheran, for example, continued to hold on to sprinkling of babies and infant baptism, and there were several other things that they held on to. In other words, that as they saw something that was wrong, uh, they would change it. But, you know, it, they were studying all during this time, and there were any number of Catholic traditions they held on to. Well, the, the Presbyterian moved just a step further away from the Catholic Church. And so, a couple of things, for example, not only did they have a plurality of, of elders and all, but they also taught uh, that in, in their worship, uh, Calvin had pointed out that instruments of music were really added by one of the popes in Rome, and that was the first. And so the initial Presbyterian churches did not have instruments of music in their worship. 
And that, uh, you know, that was, that was interesting to go back and read on that, but it was because of his study of the Catholic Church and the fact that they had introduced it there. And so in their worship, they didn't have instrument. Also, another thing Calvin did, in studying about the church in the first century uh, and then pursuing the history, he realized that the early church partook of the Lord's Supper every first, every, on a weekly basis. And that it was over a period of time that the Catholic Church had got away from that and had started doing it in a different way. And so he went back to again persuade to doing it on a weekly basis. So with the, the initial Presbyterian Church, you really have a group of people that are following a plurality of elders in their congregation who worship without instrument in their worship and who uh, partake of the Lord's Supper uh, every first day of the week. And so we see a little step further away from the Catholic Church. And again, other people start calling. We sometimes speak of it as like denominating themselves in a bad sense or something like that. It was something that, that other people started calling them because of their emphasis on the, the plurality of elders. And then over a period of time, they just accepted that as a, as a means of identification. Okay, now, John Calvin, though, with all that good, there was something else he did in his, in his theology that was to affect the Protestant Reformation all the way down through the years, and it's, and it's still there in, in various degrees. He had the most systematic and worked out theology of any of these early scholars, and he was, he was an outstanding student. But keep in mind, he comes from a background where he didn't have a lot of people, and, and he's doing everything as a lot of just original thinking. Number one is that uh, the doctrine of total depravity, that you are at, every human being is born in sin and incapable of any good whatsoever. And number two, the doctrine of election, and that is uh, that uh, if you are one of those elected to be saved, at the right time the Holy Spirit will call you and justify you, okay? So number one, total depravity. You're born in sin. You're incapable of any good ever since the sin of Adam. And number two, the doctrine of election, where if you're one of the elected one, at some time the Holy Spirit will call you, and you will respond to that call. Number three, the doctrine of limited atonement. In other words, the atonement is in reality just for the elect. Okay? That's the third part of it. All right, then along with this comes the part of the preservation of the saints, that if you are uh, the elected and you've benefited from the uh, atonement, well then you would never, you could never be lost. And so you were predestined to be saved or you were predestined to be lost. And if you were predestined to be saved at the right time the Holy Spirit would call you, you could never be lost and the atonement was for that group. And so this was pure Calvinism that was initially embraced by the uh, Presbyterian Church. Now, what we're going to see is over the centuries, a lot, of, they will, a lot of people will discard pure Calvinism and they'll hold on to various parts of it. All right? One part that will be held on to through most of the Protestant groups is the doctrine of total depravity. And that is that you are born in sin and you're incapable of, of any good until the Holy Spirit regenerates your mind. And now, I know in my background, they don't, you don't have it much in this area, I don't think. 
but in uh, I think uh, I don't know how much Steve and Patsy have had experiences with this, Mark and Nancy and that, and I don't know about the rest of you either. But have you ever been involved with a church that had a mourner's bench, where people got saved by being called to the mourner's bench? Well, the reason for the mourner's bench is the belief in total depravity, of, and it goes back to the the doctrine of Calvin, and that is that what they're actually praying for is for the Holy Spirit to come into their mind and regenerate it. And then after he regenerates their mind, he gives them the gifts of repentance and faith. So even repentance and faith are not an act of your own will. That if you're one of the saved, then the Holy Spirit will come into your mind, it will regenerate your mind, and it will give you the gifts of repentance and belief. Well, over the years, we're going to see a lot of the Protestant groups cast aside limited atonement they'll cast aside election, that you have to be one of the elect to be saved. Uh, most of them will cast aside uh, uh, the preservation of the saints, or once saved, always saved. But what most will hold on to is the, is the original sin depravity, and, and that the human mind needs to be generated by the Holy Spirit. Now, to show you how this will affect theology uh, through all these other groups down through the years, it is at this point we begin to have an emphasis on preaching without evidences of an objective nature. Because you see, the preachers themselves believe that what saved you was the Holy Spirit. And so the, the emphasis began to be on, on steering people's emotions up, moving them, getting them to move, and, and, and then to be receptive to the Holy Spirit. Well, obviously, if you think that a person comes to believe and repent through the direct action of the Holy Spirit on the mind, then you're not going to think real deeply about evidences to prove things or anything of that nature. And so with this, you actually begin to see a de-emphasis on the other because of this emphasis on, on the Holy Spirit regenerating the mind in, in some way. Okay, And that will take place on down through the years, and even groups now that don't have a mourner's bench, uh, a lot of times that uh, uh, they think, for example, that, uh, that they can just witness to people and tell them that let Jesus come into your heart and things like that, and you hear it on sermons sometimes, just let Jesus come into your heart. Well, that's what they're really uh, counting on is the Spirit, you know, to come into their heart in some mystical way. But in a way, I mean, I guess... I always interpret that as just be submissive to his will. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I'm talking about the way Calvin, you know, started and the way it was the the origin of now you should yeah, you need to be submissive to the will. Yeah, but when I, I guess when I think of that, let Jesus come into your heart or whatever, that's what I think of is is accept his will for your life and right, live be submissive to his, his will. There are those that believe, like he's saying, oh, yeah. where yeah. it's more of unless God actually or the Holy Spirit right. comes into you and does something to you, you're not going to be saved. Right. I mean, the, that's what it uh, takes. Moves you. That's the difference. And, and, and even those that uh, a little bit. We have those that preach it, like you said, let Jesus come to your heart. Many times, a lot of the preaching does not explain the mechanics to the people. You know, see, they believe the Holy Spirit's operating where the people know it or understand it or whatever. But the mechanics behind that is the belief that the Holy Spirit has to act on the heart. 
And this carries on beyond that too. And we'll, I don't, and I don't, we'll get to that later on when, when we look at specifics. And we're just giving the overall view now. It gets also takes on down to the, the belief that, uh, that in order to understand the Bible, you have to have the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and so then in terms of you need, you need the Holy Spirit, it also comes down to even believe in the inspiration of the Bible. That, that uh, this concept that, you know, the Holy Spirit will let you know and all. And so that these things that people believe now along that line, I'm saying that it started, it started with Calvin. We don't even find it until Calvin. And then we see it began to change, and, and there's a few people that hold on to all Calvinism. For example, the primitive Baptists hold on to 100% of, of John Calvin, and they believe the others have, have been wrong to leave them. On the other hand, the free will Baptists reject just about all of Calvin. That's what they mean by free will, that you have free choice uh, before you become Christian, and you have free choice afterwards. And so they, you know, there's there's been a lot of discussion of that down through the years. Okay. Do you find it, Paul? Do you find it very hard to talk to primitive Baptists because of that? I have. There's number one. There's it's interesting. There's very few primitive Baptists anymore there. But they're diehards if they are. Right. But there's the see the thing of it is if you're a primitive Baptist, where is the motivation for evangelism? There isn't any. Because, right. because you because you're right. born with it, you're okay. Right. No matter what mm -hmm. you do, you're going to be all right. God's going to call you no matter. But there, there's no motivation because why get in an argument with somebody and discuss with them when you think if they're one of the elect, God will call them at the right time. Mm -hmm. If he doesn't, they're not one of the elect. And so there's no motivation. And so the primitive Baptists simply do not put tremendous emphasis. Those of us that put emphasis on evangelism are those of us that believe that man has a free will and a choice and that we can make a difference in other people's lives by getting you know information in their mind. Well, well, I don't know, some of them don't even don't even care to be baptized into the Baptist church because they just know they're saved because they're just destined. Uh -huh. yeah. I mean, they don't even take the extra step to be baptized into the Baptist church. Yeah. Is that the... Uh, That's primitive. Primitive. Do we have any... There's a congregation over in South Carolina. Yeah. yeah. There's there's not much. Now I went. Uh, uh, I may be wrong on this. I'll check with him. I'll check with Chuck on this. But I believe Chuck's people up in uh, Tennessee. I think they're primitive. There's uh, there's more than West Tennessee. My daddy. Uh, my dad's a primitive. Family. Okay. And you don't talk to him. The I had a hmm. yeah. I had an experience. Uh, you argue, but you don't talk. The uh, when I was first starting out preaching, and I was going to Levitt Lipscomb and preaching up at Adams, Tennessee at a, at a rural congregation. And I run into a fellow there that we did baptize, but it's interesting, the experience he had. This guy was one of these uh, stoic-type personalities, and a very reasonable-type individual, and so he had, his background was, it was in a primitive church, Baptist church there, and he went forth a number of times to try and be saved, but he never could get saved. And he'd been there and they'd prayed for several hours at a time and he never got saved. So he had just simply come to the conclusion that he was doomed to be lost. His whole background, you know, was uh, that other yeah. thing. But then what happened, while he was there, he, he married a lady, he was a member of the church, and so he started coming and, and I, the way I got to meet him, she invited me over to, to we would, Barbara and I would go up there and we'd eat with a different family. And so then when I'd go, she'd take us home with her and I'd get to talk with him. 
Well, then we went ahead and over a period of time talked, and he did go ahead and obey the gospel and everything. But he had to actually be persuaded. He was waiting for some special feeling. And he said he just never had that special thing. And he was waiting for some special thing and believing that he was not one of them unless that special thing happened. And he said he would guess that there were a number like himself that actually walked out persuaded that they were not one of the elect and all because they never got, you know, that special feeling whenever they went forward. Uh, sometimes I've been in services where the praying would go on for several hours. Uh, and, and, you know, in, in, again, trying to get, you know, that special feeling which is the Holy Spirit. I've never witnessed that. I mean, everybody apparently where he assembles no. feels like they're in, there isn't any need for it, so no. they don't have the praying. Uh, after Calvin and, and his influence in the Presbyterian Church, the next big church uh, that, of the Protestant groups becomes the Church of England. And what happened there? The Church of England was no more than the, the Roman Catholic Church in England. And King Henry VIII is on the throne. And we're in the 1530s. And King Henry's wife... Uh, I'm trying to remember her, I believe, Anne Bowen. Uh, she didn't have a baby. Of course, back then, if there's no child, you always blame the woman. It's always her fault. So he wanted to divorce her and marry Catherine. And the evidence is he had an eye for Catherine anyway. But anyway, the, the Catholic Church would not stand for her. See, one thing the Catholic Church held onto strong was against divorce. I mean, they were extremely strong on that and very rigid. So, King Henry was, was used to being king, and the Pope wouldn't go tell him what to do. And so what he did, he says, that's okay. He says, we're just going to break with you. And says, you may have them over there, but I'm now the head of the Church of England. So he set himself up as the head and called it the, the Church of England. So the Church of England continued with the same ordinances, like the sprinkling of babies, uh, the various ideas about the Lord's Supper and things like that. They continue with all those ideas, but now they have King Henry, and obviously they've changed one doctrine. You can now have a, have a divorce. And so King Henry VIII becomes head of the Church of England. Now, what the Church of England, whenever they settled this country, they sent uh, uh, bishops over and started churches. And in this country, when the Church of England came to this country, they didn't want to be called, after the Revolutionary War, the Church of England. So they rebelled, and they started calling themselves the Episcopalian Church. All right? The word Episcopalian comes from a word that simply means bishop or overseers. And so they were churches that had been run by bishops over here from England, and so really they were calling themselves the Bishop's Church or the Episcopalian. So the Episcopalian Church was in reality the, the Church of England that had planted over here and then uh, uh, when after the Revolutionary War they called themselves the American Episcopal Church. Again, your worship is just like the Catholics. That's why today that a Catholic and Episcopalian can actually go into one another's worship and feel equally at home. See, they, they kept, I mean, the, the doctrine of transubstantiation of, of the, the turning to the literal body of Christ and the literal blood uh, the sprinkling of babies, uh, the various rites and sacraments they kept the same way. And so now we have the Episcopal Church. All right, now, right about this time, 
you've got uh, a fellow by the name of John Wesley, and who comes from the, the Church of England. Okay, John Wesley is a very devout bishop, very sincere individual, and he's turned off by the formalism and the rites within the Church of England and the Episcopalian Church. He can see that they have really clung to a lot of Catholicism. Uh, Wesley is an absolutely outstanding scholar. He's like John Calvin and Martin Luther. He, he's one of your very top scholars in the scriptures. So he forms little groups that uh, meet as prayer groups. And they, uh, they, they do benevolence and they pray and they study the scriptures together. Because they have a certain time and a certain way of doing things, other people began to call them the Methodist. And over a period of time, they would buy into that name. Uh, Wesley, it's interesting, the same with Calvin, uh, through his study, came to the conclusion that, uh, that instruments of music were not used in worship in the original apostolic church. So he refused to preach in churches that used them. And, that, and in, uh, a lot of Methodists don't realize this, that in the churches that Wesley preached in, they did not use the instruments because that he recognized or believed personally that it was something that was introduced by the, by the Pope in Rome. And then he again began to put emphasis on going back and really studying the Bible. He had no desire whatsoever to start a denomination. He believed strongly in the scriptures. In fact, it is really misrepresenting John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Wesley, any of those early scholars in trying to say that they were out to create a denomination with a creed book or anything like that. They all wanted to be just simple Christians and, and to go back to, to the scriptures. Okay, after, uh, after uh, the, the Methodist church, or actually what would really come time-wise before that, the first Baptist church that we have record of, so far as a, a group of people call themselves a Baptist church, was a fellow by the name of John Smith. Uh, S-Y-M-T-H in London, England. And so in 1607 in London, England, and the way the church got formed is, keep in mind, most of them were still practicing sprinkling. And all the time you've got more and more people becoming scholars in the Bible and studying. Well, John Smith came to the conclusion that, that the apostles immersed and that sprinkling was actually introduced by the Roman Catholic Church. And so he went out, and the record is he had a friend immerse him, and he immersed his friend. And so they formed this fellowship, and, and they would not admit into the fellowship except, except people had been immersed. And, and so at first, now this is interesting, they don't call themselves Baptists. They come to this country, and in Rhode Island, in this country, Roger Williams, uh, who studied about Roger Williams in history. Roger Williams was an outstanding student of the Bible. And he believed in a freedom of study that was not allowed under the Puritans. And so Williams was persuaded by the group that would eventually become the Baptist Church, and, and he was immersed. Now, when this group uh, first started, they rejected all names. They called themselves Christians, brethren, disciples, and believers. They, they, they believed that the absolute authority for the scriptures was in the Bible. And so they started out wanting to be nothing but Christians or brethren or believers, but yet people kept calling them Baptists because of the immersion. Eventually, it stuck. But after you have this first generation that would not have accepted, died out, and the others just quit fighting it, and finally accepted it there.
But that's how it, now, let me say one thing about the Baptist did Church. They, They're waiting for they refreshments, and I'll pause for tonight. Did they come off of the Methodist or Presbyterian? Well, they would be actually before the Methodist. It would be the Presbyterian, from primarily from a Presbyterian. And you'll see this in uh, the, the early Baptists, uh, held under the doctrine of once saved, always saved, and later on more will reject it, and, and the uh, limited atonement and all, and you'll see them begin to challenge a lot, but at first they have embraced John Calvin, and the only difference between them and the Presbyterian Church at first is the fact of immersion, and so then they, they began to emphasize that, and also they, they honestly fought having any name. They wanted to be uh, just Christians. Now, let me Bring it on down further on the Baptist who have paused for tonight. We sometimes in our group have misrepresented uh, some of them like we'll say that the Baptists have you know a written creed. They've got the articles of faith they follow right down the line and all like it. But in reality, when you go back and read the uh, I believe it's it's Hitchcock's rule of I'm trying to it starts I'm trying to think of the exact name, but anyway, in their their what what they state here is that that they are not to be bound, that, that the church does not have the right to bind with any legalistic creed of faith. In other words, spelled out for them. Uh, with the Baptists, that's really not true. Uh, they have local congregations, they choose their own preachers, and they, they have strong <coughs> statements in there that their sole authority is the New Testament. And then also, Although they believe that to have a fellowship, they have to have a common agreement on basic issues, they do not believe that anybody has the right to spell out things in detail and say that everybody has to believe it. In other words, they will allow uh, really the same kind of differences in all that, that we do. And that was interesting to me to read, that uh, you know, their attitude towards that. Anyway, we'll... Uh, We'll pause at this point and then we'll pick up next week and we'll uh, give an overview of the, uh, the Mormon and the uh, Jehovah's Witness. And by the way, those two, the reason I picked out is because I think because they are so active and going around everything like that, I really believe that, that all Christians... There's a big difference between, see, all these things we've been talking about so far, these are people that, are, that believe in the deity of Christ, that believe in the authority of the scriptures and everything like that. And what we call a cult, by definition, is, is when we're outside uh, the acceptance of the, the belief in the deity of Jesus and the authority of the scriptures. We go to another authority and we have a compromise on the deity of Christ. And I think that, uh, that it's good for, for all of us to have a good understanding of it. So we'll look at a background on both the Mormons and then also the Jehovah's Witness. Okay, let's take a break. And anybody wants to make any comments yeah, or ask any questions? I'll ask questions. How come then that, like, if John Wesley and Calvin and Martin Luther and all them studied the Bible and went back to it, how come they kept the infant sprinkling or the sprinkling in general rather than the baptism? Why did well, you go all the way to the Baptist before we got back to that point? Well, keep in mind that when you have been taught something all your life, it's just like with, within our any fellowship, you can see things that people have been taught and they just read right through it. So if you have been sprinkling your babies and you were sprinkled and everything like that, see they had their arguments for it. And although initially it came about because of uh, an authority type thing, well then what happens when people develop a doctrine, they then go back and look for scriptural ways to defend it. 
So they would go back and show where the entire household occurred. And they'd, and they'd say, well, you know that household had some babies in it. And then suffer the little children to come unto me. And then they'd go back to circumcision under the law of Moses, how that you were circumcised. And they said, what is really happening is that even though the baby don't understand, the parents are dedicating and pledging themselves to bring that child up and everything. So when they look at circumcision, they look at some of those other statements, and then they'd come to the conclusion that, uh, you know, of, of baptizing the baby. And then they, did, they just ignored the immersion part of it. They just went with the sprinkling because of the convenience? Well, immersion never was. Uh, at first, it was for sick people in 251. Mm -hmm. with no, and we've actually got the historical record of Novation. And it was debated for hundreds of years. Well, then at the Council of Ravenna in 1311 is when they, the, 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 they made the decision just to substitute uh, sprinkling or fusion for it. But it wasn't because they understood it different. They always understood immersion. It was just that it was simpler. Okay? Well, see, you can see that when the people broke away, if you don't think of baptism as an essential component, well, then what's the big deal? So it wasn't that they believed it was still sprinkling. They, they believed that it, uh, that, it, that it was immersion, but they believed that sprink, since it was not essential to salvation, that you could take sprinkling as a substitute. It was more it's a ceremonial. Right. Yeah. And, and, they would, and they had their arguments for doing it. Right. Well, see then, like with the, the Baptist, they pointed, they brought out some real arguments that the others had thought about. They said, listen, with baptism, what you're spelling out is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the death, burial, and resurrection of the person. And said, whenever you sprinkle somebody, you lose that symbolism. That there's a, and, and the washing away of sin says you lose all the symbolism when you do it. And so that was their argument that you have destroyed the, the real meaning of the symbolism. And that another thing, keep in mind that, that they were had very strong feelings against the Pope. And the thing is, well, are we going to do what the New Testament says or are we going to do what the Pope said? And eventually, immersion will pretty well win out. Uh, you know, in fact, it's it was interesting to me when I was up on the mountain where Barbara's family is, you know where I come from? All the Methodist churches up there immersed. Uh -huh. They, uh, you know, it was interesting. It was just uh, some of the individuals. See, the, the preachers I ran into in the Northeast, like in the Methodist, they would teach you had your choice. But we ran into one Methodist preacher up there when we were studying with a young couple that had a background in that direction. And so they wanted, we, they wanted me to study with him. And he come out, he had been immersed himself. And he said, well, although the church gave the choice, that he personally preferred immersion because of, of what it meant and that he, and he felt more comfortable doing it that way. But the church would not allow him to just say it's immersion. But they would allow him to tell them that although you've got the choice, I prefer this and I've been immersed myself. And that's the way, well, then you can imagine most of them chose immersion. Now, the Pentecostal groups, did they come out of what group? The All right, we'll get to the, uh, we haven't got, the Pentecost, we don't run into them to really 1899. And what you'll find them coming from is uh, uh, out of the, uh, the, Primarily the, a Methodist type background with Wesley, but uh, it's they're they're really more hard to pinpoint because you don't have any one person. Uh, uh, I'll go ahead. next. I'll, I'll just give you this because we'll in in 1899, Topeka, Kansas, 
uh, New Year's Eve, you had 21 people that through their reading of the scriptures had believed that you could have the experience like Pentecost. So they spent the entire day up to uh, going to go all night praying for those gifts. And so then at uh, midnight, New Year's Eve, 1899, the Holy Spirit fell on them and they began to speak in tongues. And then out of that came the, at first it was, uh, it was two or three different Pentecostal groups. But then when they, they came together and united, and that became the United Pentecostal group. But then what happened, they, they really grew by leaps and bounds. That by uh, the source that I was getting my information from, uh, just took their stats up to the 70s, and they had already grown to eight and a half million people in the United States by the time, and, and it, uh, right now that they are a tremendously fast growing group because it's not only within the group, but see there's a, the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship is a spinoff from that, and there are charismatic groups within the Catholic Church, within the Episcopal Church, within the Methodist Church, within Church of Christ, that each of your groups have charismatic groups that really are Pentecostal, even though they don't go to the Pentecostal truth. But they, they are really probably the fastest growing body of people and have been, you know, for some time. But there's some things we'll go into that sets the stages for that. You know, in the one first one thing I was going to ask you about is the Bible is translated into English. 1611? The King James is 1611, but before King James, you have the Wycliffe translation, and that uh, up to that time, you uh, you depend on you have to be a Greek and Hebrew scholar. It was somewhere now Luther translated it into German, but he was denounced. See, when he translated into German, as long it was as long as he was kept in Latin. And Greek and Hebrew, and the Catholic Church had the primary in Latin. Well, see, that kept the common people out of it. And so when Luther translated it into the German language, that was another nail in his coffin so far as the Catholic Church was concerned. And, and the guy that translated it into English, they wound, wound up yeah, putting not only that and digging his body up and burning it, you know. I mean, but the reason they didn't want to translate it, and they went common, and the way they kept it out of the hands of the common people—that's a good point, Mark—is not just the fact of the the authority thing, but by not translating it into the languages, and, and contrast that with when the New Testament went out. One of the unique qualities was, of it was that immediately. Within that generation, it was translated into all the languages of the people. And then the Catholic Church put clamps on that, kept it in Latin, and the common person couldn't read it. Well, the translation into common language fueled this. Uh, Is that so cool? Yeah. Okay. I didn't... But I, I'm probably going to take this side off. It, it fueled the, the rebellion in church. Yeah. Okay, some people could study. Yeah. Oh, that's it. it, it and what it helps you to, what it helps me to appreciate is just like when we talk about sending Bibles to, to Eastern Russia, you know, in places like that, and, and like sending to Africa and all. You just can't do anything greater than just putting the Bible in the hands of people. I mean, the uh, anywhere you put the Bible in people's hands, you just begin to see changes. And and the whole change in Martin Luther came about by just reading the Scriptures. I mean, it, it, but, and I, I don't think. I don't know how much power there is in the 
Yeah, it's amazing what happens to people's minds when all of a sudden they get hold of the Bible. 